0: Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 15, which is a beautiful chapter as we've been marching through the book of Acts. I know that in 2021, we have um, seen some of our practices in the church and in community atrophy. We've become unaccustomed to hospitality and to friendship and to doing things, and when you don't do them for a while, then those muscles atrophy, and I think one of those muscles has been the ability to do good conflict to disagree well, to stand on two sides of something very different, and to be able to talk about it, pray about it, dialogue about it, come up with a solution together. And so it's rare and beautiful to see in the book of Acts that an issue that threatens to split the church is one that actually knits her together even more deeply. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... When they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will Show us what it means to be the church that is in absolute agreement and allegiance to the gospel, and is absolutely open-handed in what it means to build a community of unity with one another together. You can show us this, and so we humbly submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're essentially asking today what the church was asking these so many years ago, What is essential to the gospel and what is needed for community and unity? What do we need to understand and stand on Christ alone and what is needed in this cultural moment of joining together in the church body? Well, the moment you hear about essentials and non essentials, maybe your mind goes to this beautiful quote that was said so many years ago in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. One guy knows this quote. Excellent. It's a beautiful quote, and you could cross-stitch the thing and keep it on your mantle over the fireplace. But as I was researching that quote this week, I realized somebody pointed out to me that um, we often attribute it to Augustine, but it was probably said by Marco Antonio, who lived a thousand years after Augustine. And ironically, Marco couldn't get along with anybody. He picked fights with everyone, Catholics and Protestants, and he was condemned as a heretic twice. So that quote was meaningless to him, and you could go home and take it off your mantle and throw it in the fire. This is hard work. It was hard for the church in Acts. It was hard for Marco. It's hard for us today. What do we do when we feel like we're facing the essentials of the gospel and what's needed for community? I want to look at their problem, and I want to look at their solution, and we'll find ourselves along the way. So what's really going on here? What's happening in our context? What's happening in Acts chapter 15? In the beginning, the church was only a Jewish church. The very first converts to Christianity were Jews, which meant the earliest church was all of one kind of people, and that was relatively simple and relatively easy. Everybody looked the same, everybody talked the same, everybody voted the same, everybody kind of got along culturally, religiously, linguistically, until the Great Commission gets legs, and the gospel goes out from Jerusalem and spreads, and now all of a sudden you have Samaritans and Gentiles, and Africans, and Asians, and Europeans who are coming into the church, now what do we do? Does the church change to accommodate the Gentile newcomers, or does she stay the same to accommodate her Jewish firstcomers? Like, who has priority within the church body? In other words, what is necessary and essential to the gospel that's always the same, and what is needed for unity, which is different in every place and time. We hear the Jewish group present the problem. So they're the ones that push the problem in the first place. Verse 1, right away, men from Judea say, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Can't get more clear than that. And they're backed by the Pharisees in Jerusalem in verse 5 it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these Jewish men, of course, are referring to Gentile converts, and they're essentially saying that a Gentile who has come to Jesus now must become a Jew in order to be saved and be part of our community. They're saying we Jews have been worshiping the one true God since Abraham. We've been doing this for like 2,000 years. And if you're a Gentile believer, you can't willy-nilly walk up in here into our church and not change anything. You must become like us to worship with us. That's what these guys are saying. Now, we're so far removed from that controversy, it's hard for us to fully understand it. But here's two clues that tell us this was a big deal. Number one, the Jew-Gentile division, controversy, hostility comes up in almost every single New Testament book. The church never gets away from it. It was a really big deal. And number two, we know it's a big deal because you've got this little euphemism in verse two that says, when it first came up, there was no small dissension. I love when the Bible says, there was no small something, which means it was huge. The Greek word dissension is the same word used of Barabbas who caused an insurrection and a revolt. This is something that is a vehement disagreement that threatens to tear the church apart. This is a really big deal. But I love this. This is so rare. The church stays in close quarters to find a solution. We don't know what that looks like today when you can cancel a person and leave and you don't have to deal with it. Here's the church fighting in a phone booth and no one's leaving. It's messy, it's ugly. There's some low blows, but no one's going anywhere and we're going to watch the church figure this out together. They take it really serious. This is happening in the city of Antioch. That's where the first missionary journey went out from. Then Paul and Barnabas came back. The men from Judea came up and started messing with them and telling them this is the opposition. And Antioch Presbyterian Church up there says, you know, this is a big deal. We need help. We're not going to make a little local church solution. We need a big C church solution. So they grab their leadership and they come down to Jerusalem and meet with their leadership. I know sometimes we think about the book of Acts nostalgically, like it's this fluid, organic, spontaneous ministry. And we wish our churches today could put away their pie charts and become this extemporaneous believing body that we had in the book of Acts. But when you look closely, there's a case to be made for a presbytery meeting. You bring your elders from your church, and we'll bring our elders from our church. And when we get together, we're actually bigger than our individual local churches. We're going to figure something out together together. And there can be a case made from Acts 15 for church courts and bylaws and Robert's rules of orders and things that will put you to sleep as bedtime reading if they serve the bigger church for clarity on the gospel and fervor for the Great Commission. If that's what it takes to do things decently in order to get your church and my church and that church all together, then let's do that. And that's exactly what's happening here. So the problem, we said, was what's necessary to the gospel and what's needed for community. The solution is fascinating. And it's going to rub us like it's contradictory when we first hear it. But the solution is liberty and love. I'm going to paraphrase the great reformer Martin Luther who said similarly to this, in with respect to liberty, a Christian is utterly free in Christ, subject to none. You do not tell me what to do. I stand on Jesus alone. A Christian is utterly free in Christ, subject to none. That is my liberty in the gospel. Secondly, love. A Christian is utterly submissive in Christ, subject to all. Subject to none, subject to all, liberty and love. Let's look at these one at a time. First, liberty. We're hearing the Jewish opposition saying the Gentiles must obey the law of Moses to be saved. John Stott put it well when he said the opposition thinks the Gentiles must let Moses complete what Jesus has begun absolutely not. The law of gospel liberty, a Christian is utterly free in Christ, subject to none. Moses doesn't complete what Jesus starts. Jesus is the telos. Jesus is the aim. Jesus is the completion. Jesus is what brings this salvation. And no persons, not men from Judea, not Pharisees who are sitting in Jerusalem, not pastors, not popes, not politicians, not even your mama, Can add a jot or tittle to this gospel of grace that says we are saved in Jesus alone. It will be Jesus plus nothing that will be this gracious salvation. Peter stands up in the middle of this room and says in verse eleven with such clarity that a child could understand. We we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will. That's what saves us, the grace of the Lord Jesus. So you've got the Christian Liberty Party. Peter is among them. And they put forward that thesis, you can't add anything to the gospel. A Christian is free from all. And then they give these supporting proofs. They give three proofs for why this is true. And I think this is important for us to see because Oftentimes, as believers, the way I'm doing things in my tribe of Christians over here is different than the way they're doing their thing among their tribe of Christians over here. And I don't like what they're doing or how they're doing it. And here's three proofs to kind of pause and say, well, does it subscribe to this? And if so, maybe I could learn something. Number one, the first proof is in the fruit. So people are actually being converted By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter stands up and he says in verse seven, he reminds them of what happened with Cornelius. Cornelius and his household, they come to faith. They're baptized. The spirit falls upon them. They're not circumcised. Clearly God has done something. There is spiritual fruit. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas say the same thing. We've seen Gentiles come to faith and they're actually believers in Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. So God is doing something if I'm upset with a group of believers over here and I don't think they're doing the right thing and I don't think they're doing it in the right way and they're not listening to me, I will pause and say, is God working there? Is he doing something there? I don't mean, is the ministry big? Bigness is not a fruit. Bigness is not a fruit of the spirit that God will bring. You can have a crowd of people following a false teacher, leading on the road to perdition. I'm not talking about big, I'm talking about faithful. Is this a Cornelius kind of ministry where you see a man and his family come to Christ, stay in Christ, and bear fruit over the lifetime? If that's happening over there, I'm going to pause a little bit and I'm going to learn something from that ministry. One proof is in the fruit. Another proof is Peter's brutal honesty in verse 10. I love this because this took a lot of guts for him. He stands up in a room that is mostly Jewish and he says, you know, we keep talking about adding all these burdens to the Gentiles, but we don't even keep these burdens ourselves. Now, Christian, be honest with me. Have you as a believer ever sat with another believer and told them how they should be a believer and you're telling them things you don't do yourself? Have you ever sat with another person and they've poured out their heart and confessed a sin to you and you are nodding solemnly and understanding and you don't let on that you actually struggle with the exact same thing? If you have done that, you could be a pastor you spend a lot of time telling people to do things that you wish you yourself would do. You hear confessions where you want to lean towards that person, but, but you want to interject, I'm actually worse than you are in this situation. And one of the greatest ways to keep the gospel free from personal preferential clutter is to only speak of what we actually do and feel and know in Christ to talk about the real and not the ideal. This comes up all the time when we wax eloquent on what we wish the church would be, right? When she becomes our punching bag and not the bride of Christ. I wish she was this way. I wish she did this. I wish she gave more money to the poor. I wish she was more diverse. I wish she was more hospitable. I wish she was more welcoming to all kinds of people. I agree with you. Tell me about you. What happens in your household? What happens at your dinner table? Show me your budget and where you spend your money. You are the church. And Jesus took it very seriously when we wag our fingers at other believers, things that we don't do ourselves. He Slammed the Pharisees on this point. And it was one of those moments, those cringe worthy moments in Jesus' ministry, where it's like, I can't believe he's actually saying this to somebody. Matthew 23, he says, The Pharisees preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they are not willing to move them with their fingers. Beware of adding a burden to another believer that you don't bear yourself. Well, the final and most important proof, number three, is in scripture. James gets up and he quotes from Amos chapter nine. This was always God's plan. This is not a surprise that Gentiles are coming to faith and coming into the church. God always intended this to happen. Here it is in his word. This is a proof that God is doing his work and that is the ultimate authority. If these believers are doing something differently than I would have done it, but they stand on scripture, then who am I to say anything? This will stand. So the final answer to the question of whether Gentiles must act like Jews to be saved or whether any of us can add any of our preferences to the gospel and say becoming a believer means accepting Jesus and doing things our way. The answer to that question is shove off. I am free in Christ. I stand on Jesus alone. As I repent my sins and receive his forgiveness, it will be him alone who saves me and I'll take Jesus and Jesus alone. That's liberty. And that makes the next point very confusing because I'm a Christian who's utterly free in Christ, subject to none in the gospel, but I'm a Christian who is utterly submissive to Christ and subject to all. That sounds like it contradicts itself. The reason we're utterly free in Christ we just said is because God graciously gives us his love which costs us nothing and I couldn't possibly add to that. But the reason we're utterly submissive in Christ is because God also graciously gives us this which is the local church body which costs us everything. What wouldn't I give for the sake of faith in another person? In other words, if I'm doing something that is hindering the worship of this church or hindering the faith of a neighbor, why wouldn't I drop it? I might be doing something that's totally within my rights. I might be doing something that doesn't break any law. I might be doing something that is not against any explicit command in Scripture. But if I know it is hindering the worship of a fellow believer, or I know it is hindering my witness to a lost world, why wouldn't I put that right down? That's the spirit of what happens next in the Jerusalem Council. They're saying, wait a minute. We just said that this is the gospel. You've got these. Jewish believers, some of them are brand new Christians, and you've got this watching community of Jews that hasn't come to faith yet, and we've just told Gentiles, they come from a totally foreign culture, and they will come into this place, and they don't have to change a single thing. That's going to hurt the faith of some of these baby believers. That's going to drive the rest of the Jewish community away. This will be a disaster, but it is the gospel. What on earth are we to do? Enter James. Enter James. Now we lost a James back in chapter 12. That was James the Apostle. That was one of Jesus' inner three, and he was beheaded. This is James, the half brother of Jesus. James, the son of Mary and Joseph. James, the guy that used to mock Jesus and tease Jesus and disbelieve that Jesus was the Messiah. He has now been converted, and he is now a pillar in this church. In fact, they call James camel knees because of the time he spent on his knees in prayer. I don't know if you've ever seen a a camel. That's not complimentary. But James was a prayer warrior on his knees praying. He will go on to write the book of James, and he will go on to be martyred by stoning. He stands up, and he sums up this entire council in liberty and love. Liberty, verse 19, we should not trouble these Gentiles by adding a single thing to the gospel. We can't, and far be it from us to do so. But love, verse 20, we should actually ask these Gentiles to abstain from four things. We should tell them not to eat food sacrificed by idols, or food strangled, or food with the blood still in it, or sexual immorality. It's interesting, of those four things, none of those were the ones that the guys were pressing for. They wanted circumcision, they wanted obedience to the law. He rejects all those and says, don't add anything to the gospel, but instead he introduces these four, and there's a debate about why exactly he chose these four, the best explanation I know is that it really mirrors Leviticus 17 and 18 that talk about food laws and talk about sexual immorality. These are ceremonial food laws that Jews would have always practiced. They would have always known. They would have been horrified to see someone do something any differently than that. And so he captured those those food laws to say, man, this is the only way a Jew and a Gentile are actually going to sit at a dinner table together. This is kind of a big deal. Let's tell the Gentiles to practice this. Does James think that a Gentile believer can't eat a rare bloody steak and be saved? Of course he doesn't. He just said that in verse 19. He knows absolutely that it's Christ alone. It's not your ceremonial food laws. But does James think that Gentile believers doing life with Jewish believers who are highly sensitive to ceremonial food laws should, for the sake of unity, forego in those places and at those times eating said bloody rare steak for the sake of fellowship and unity? Well, James says, absolutely. That is far more valuable to the community to be together than to divide over something so silly. I am absolutely free in Christ, and I will use my freedom to serve another person. This marriage of liberty and love is so hard, and it's so hard for the church. When it comes to liberty and it comes to love, I think we as Americans get the liberty part, right? I don't think there's many American believers who struggle with personal rights and freedoms, that it's my body and my choice and I'll do what I want. And actually, that can be a beautiful thing when it lays claim to the simplicity of this gospel and says, don't you dare add another thing to this. I will die over this. That's a beautiful thing, but it's not so pretty when it comes to love and laying down said rights simply for the sake of another believer and their conscience. Paul, when he was thinking about this, said something absolutely crazy in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says, if it is an offense to another person, I will never eat meat again. I'll become a vegetarian. Can you believe an American Christian saying something like that today? Apparently Paul was not from the South, because it's like, Paul, like not even barbecue? You're not going to eat any meat for the sake of another person? That is absolutely radical. And what would it look like for a room full of believers to say, I will stand on Jesus alone, and you will not add anything to my salvation in Christ, but I will gladly give that up for the sake of another. The world doesn't know that we subscribe to this. The world has no idea that Acts chapter 15 exists. So we have a little advantage until they start reading our Bible. Um, We got some room to practice this because the world looking in on us, they see liberty and they're missing the love part. So they get liberty loud and clear within the church. I don't think we have anything to prove on that front because the world has watched the church divide over politics, divide over how we talk about race, divide over how we handle wealth, divide over justice, divide over masks and vaccinations. They've watched the church that says, we will dwell together in fellowship at a table with Jesus, divide over wealth. Whether you wear a mask or not, my goodness, the world is not confused about liberty. They have seen its two-edged sword swing in the church, defending our rights, and heads have rolled. But what if we showed them this? What if I could say, I stand on Jesus alone for my salvation and nothing else, none of your cultural imports, none of your ideas. I stand on Jesus alone and I'll die for that. But I will gladly, in a heartbeat, give up any of those things for the sake of another believer's faith and the sake of my neighbor's witness so that the rights I have fall to the ground and they can be unified with me. Because if I did that, they might then understand the message I keep telling them, that there is one who had every right in himself to stay where he was and gladly gave up those rights for my sake to lay down and die, that he could unite me to to himself. And this law of liberty and love, man, That would be a gospel that would preach. May the Lord do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. I pray that you would show us liberty and love in the gospel. I pray that we would hold fast to the truth of who you are, and I pray that we will gladly lay down the rights and the privileges you've given us in this kingdom, if it will serve another, if it will be to the benefit of another's faith. I pray for that humility, and I pray that you would bring it in the Spirit's power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.